This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Okay, cool. Let's do it. Do what? Uh, the podcast thingy. That's what we've been doing. This is the podcast. It's going to be a boring podcast then. (laughs) I think it always is. I don't know. (laughs) Well, we released 1.1. I got to work on features again. Cool. It was great. Although it's funny, I so I released 1.0 and then immediately found a breaking change that I want to make. <laughs> okay, it's time for 2.0 then. He's nine weeks away. He's a <laughs> point one now, then point two next week. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you have to make nine other changes. Sorry. Or eight other changes. Then you can make this breaking change. When I was a kid, I actually thought that like, oh, World of Warcraft released patch 1.9. So I guess the next patch has to be the expansion. <laughs> It is a little weird. Like for a long time, I didn't realize that version numbers could be like 1.10 or 1.11, 1.12. I mean, you don't usually see things get that high, right? Not usually, although like... I mean, it, Linux, but that's about the only one I can think of. It brings me great joy to have clearance version 1. Dot, like, oh, what am I on now? Let's check. Um, oh, it's not in that file. We just released 1.1.1, and so I was joking with the rest of the core team like... All right, from now on, we're never incrementing numbers. We're just going to continue appending dot one onto the end of it, <laughs> which of course you can't actually do in Rust because version numbers have to be valid sem for identififiers. But yeah, I'm on one sixteen one for clearance, which uh, I like. Nice. But there's lots of stuff I actually would love to break, but just don't have time for it, and it's not a high priority. So <laughs> it's just going to keep going one sixteen one, one seventeen, one seventeen one, things like that, probably. But yeah, it's a sign of stability, maybe. <laughs> well, the, the change that I wanted to make, I think we could have and it would have been fine, but it required a slightly loose interpretation of the API evolution guidelines. Because like if you read it by the letter, it was definite. So like Rust has a series basically separates the term major change, minor change and breaking change mm-hmm. in that just about anything you do can theoretically cause some code somewhere to stop compiling. Mm-hmm. And so any change that can cause some code to stop compiling is technically a breaking change. But if we actually say all breaking changes require, in the strictest sense, require a Semver major bump, that means that nobody can ever change anything without a Semver major bump. So mm-hmm. basically posited that all major changes are breaking, but not all breaking changes are major. And basically, the places that it says this is a minor breaking change are things where the amount of work required to migrate is small, and you could have written your code slightly differently, usually just being more specific and forward compatibly prevent Mm -hmm. the breakage. So like, for example, traits, right? You can have methods, and they are separate from the types. And so you can have two traits, which both add a method with the same name. And if both traits are in scope, the code stops compiling. So that would mean that adding a method to a trait is, would technically be a breaking change because, well, if they were doing foo.bar, now that can stop compiling. But so the API evolution guidelines say, well, instead of doing foo.bar and relying on you know the compiler to figure out what trait that comes from, they could have explicitly said bar colon colon bar passing it foo. Yep. 
and they could have always been doing that, and then they would have never had the breakage. And because it's a small amount of work to fix, uh, and and there's a way to forward compatibly prepare for it, it's fine. And so the thing that I wanted to do was I realized that we are relying on MySQL's C libraries numeric conversions more than I realized we were. Okay. Which doesn't matter too much because like we can just continue to do those conversions at the same place when we drop the C library. But there were two things I didn't like. Uh, number one, it requires us to, before we execute a query, it requires us to tell the client, here are the types I expect to get back, as opposed to just the client tells us, you know, or we, uh, the, you know, we, we get the types based off of just whatever the server sent us and we just know what those are because compiled. So that's the first problem. And then the second problem is while we can do those conversions for places where you're using the query builder and we know what we expect, for um, SQL query, the API where you write the entire query yourself as a string and you never tell us the type that you expect until after deserializations occurred, at least at the C library side, these are going to become more apparent. And, and the main places, they're all small enough that I'm fine with just like diesel becomes a little looser for MySQL specifically. So like all number literals in uh, MySQL, I think even bind parameters are 64 bits. And so if you do like foo plus one, regardless of whether uh, one is the number one or a question mark, and the important thing with it being a question mark is you've explicitly told MySQL, no, here's a 32-byte number. Um, but I believe it always interprets those as 64 bits. And then a bunch of the numeric operators return different types. So like integer division and integer multiplication both return floats okay. as opposed to integers. Uh, summing a 32-bit integer returns a 64-bit integer. Summing a 64-bit integer returns decimal. I think those are all the main changes. So what I wanted to do was basically just be like, all right, you know, we're going to be a little bit looser here for MySQL. So when you, when we're deserializing a 32-bit integer, we're just going to actually set it up so that we're past not just the raw byte, we're past the raw byte and what it actually is. And then we'll accept any valid number. Mm -hmm. With the exception of if it turns out to be decimal, like there needs to be a feature enabled because we can't out of the box just parse an arbitrary decimal. The problem is, technically, it would be a breaking change because it changes the raw representation that Diesel gives you when you're deserializing things for MySQL from just an array of bytes to this new struct. And so any code that was written that had a from SQL implementation that relied on the fact that for MySQL, it is specifically an array of bytes, that code would break. And my argument was, well, since MySQL, there are no new types in MySQL, and everything that we don't support is basically sent as a string, there's never any reason you should be looking at the raw bytes in the first place. Any implementation that's out there should be doing string from SQL and then, you know, looking at that string. Mm -hmm. And anything that was writing like, and I take raw bytes, could have forwards compatibly changed that to write MySQL as backend raw value, which is kind of what you should do anyway. And so for that reason, it would have been fine. Uh, and some people felt uncomfortable with it, but no one ever really came to a decision. But then eventually I just closed it because I'm like, you know what? If we're having this much discussion about it, let's just not all, you know, we can live without this change. It's a it, it means I can't get rid of some code I want to get rid of, but we'll live. Right. Although it is a little unfortunate just because I, I do think, you know, I was very confident also that all of this conversation was theoretical and that there's no actual code out, out there that, that would break. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the longer we wait, the less confident I, I am in that. Would it break in a way that you would just like it would no longer compile or would it break in right. a runtime way? 
No, it would, it would just no longer like, compile. When you were talking about the API guidelines, API evolution guidelines or whatever it was called from Rust, and you were talking about how like, oh, theoretically, any change could cause your program to no longer compile. To me, that is like a significantly, like, it just made me think about the differences between versioning when it comes to something like Ruby or Node and versioning when it comes to something with a compiler, particularly one that has uh, guarantees that are very strict. Right. Is that it doesn't really matter to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if my compiler is going to catch it, then I don't care if you call it 1.1 or 2.0 or anything. Like, it's just far less important because if I try an upgrade and I get a compiler, I, I got a compiler and I can decide what to do with that. Like... I can decide to stay on the old version, or I can decide to change my code such that it compiles, or I can decide to raise an issue or submit a pull request well, to fix the thing. Yes and no, but I mean, it, it's useful in that you want to be able to say, and I would like to continue to receive updates that don't cause my code to break, and I don't want to have to think about it. Right, but why is that any different than if I had, like, maybe, so you release that in 1.1, and it actually causes, let's say you release it in 1.1, it causes maybe five people come back and say that would be a lot i think right five people if five yeah, people if came it, it would have been one person right. if anything so if one person comes back and says this broke my code right your answer is likely going to be sorry about that <laughs> like like you're not going to like backport like yank that version i don't even know if you can I do actually that actually probably i actually probably would have yanked the version in that case wow so i would i would just be like okay well i'm sorry about that i did my you know to me, the version numbers, it, as much as you can enforce them with types and stuff, is great, but mostly they're for signaling. It's like, I do not intend for this to break your code. It doesn't sure. mean it's not going to, right? Which is, again, in keeping with my general ethos of, like, I don't even bother, like, in gem files in Ruby, I don't bother with pessimistic version constraints, because... I'm gonna have to test it anyway, right? So the only time I put yeah. a version, the only time I put any version constraint in a gem file, for the most part, is when Rails. I know Rails. I'll start with, and then also if I know there to be an incompatibility, right? Which is nice because then you can see, like, I like it because then I can see, like, oh, what's this here for? And I can hit get blame, and there's the the commit is usually a comment on like a link to an issue that I'm having, or something like that where you can tell why that constraint is there. And it's not just like, well, I don't know, it's what it's what rubygems.org suggested, so I copied and pasted it in. Well, it can be a bigger problem in Rust. Well, it's funny, like it can, depending on the context, it can either be a much bigger problem in Rust or a much smaller prob problem in Rust to have breaking changes. Because, so there's no real good way to support multiple versions of a dependency unless those versions are compatible. So unless just, you know, your code without any conditionals works on both versions, which depending on the context, it might just not matter at all because unlike Ruby, dependencies in Rust don't all have to resolve to the same version. Mm -hmm. So if it's a purely internal dependency, then there's no reason that you would ever need to support more than one version in the first place. Uh, but like, for example, Chrono is a datetime library in Rust that Diesel supports. And the version of Chrono that Diesel supports needs to be the same as the version of Chrono that you're using because it's a it's an external dependency. And so the problem is if Chrono makes a breaking change, Diesel doesn't have an obvious way right now, unless it's a breaking change that just happens to not affect Diesel. There's no real way for Diesel to support multiple versions. Right. So then it's like, okay, Chrono made a breaking change. Do we bump our minimum supported version? Is that a breaking change for Diesel? Right. And a bunch of our dependencies that we support are 0.x, and we haven't come up with a policy on what we're going to do yet if those break, other than just cross our fingers and hope nobody breaks in a way that affects us. And 
if it ever does happen, and our policy will probably be if you're relying on a zero point X library, that that feature is implicitly considered unstable. I guess. I mean, to me, the the version number thing, and it gets a little more formal in something like Rust, where you can prove like at least the types of the existing methods are the same, right? Or existing functions are the same. Yeah, I mean, nobody's written a tool to do that, but there's, everybody talks like, that would be so cool. I'm like, actually, no, that's a bad idea. I don't want that. <laughs> you could theoretically do something like that, but ultimately, the version number solves a human communication issue, right? So, like, it's a signal, but it's not an, it's not an answer. Well, it's a human communication issue, but it's one that is specifically meant to be resolved by computers. I guess, but I just don't think you can because ultimately it's humans making the decision about whether or not something is breaking in a various ways. And, and as you discussed, sure. like almost everything, depending on how you look at it, is breaking. And that's not just true for Rust. That's true probably in much more large ways for something like Ruby because you can use the code in any way you would like. <laughs> yep. I mean, to be fair, though, right? I mean, I think it's actually a pretty straight comparison to Ruby. I mean, anything that would cause your code to stop compiling in Rust is likely going to result in a very obvious runtime error, like no method error in Ruby. Only if you hit that portion of your code when you're testing that upgrade. Right. 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 And by compiling, you are testing that up, that part of the upgrade, right? And if you don't have that step in your test suite, then you're not going to catch it. Sure. I don't know. I mean, it's like, I don't buy anybody's argument that you need fewer tests in statically typed languages, or at the very least that you don't still need 100% test coverage. I mean, I've only done very limited, strong, statically typed stuff, but I would assume the type of coverage you need is different. Is that fair? I, mean, I still want to, yeah, but I mean, I still want to execute every line in the code base at least once in my tests. Right, and but there's, there's a difference between like, I executed this line and I exercised this line. Sure. In all of its permutations. But for the kind of changes that we're talking about, generally speaking, I mean, I guess the one that probably wouldn't necessarily get caught there is like a thing switches from taking a string to an integer or something and you're just passing it nil. But I mean, like if we're talking about, you know, major changes to type signatures, number of arguments changed, return type changed in a very incompatible way, method names changed or were removed, like those all get hit by even the most trivial tests. Yeah. I mean, I guess my process for when I do an upgrade in Ruby, if I upgrade a gem, my process is like if it's a minor version bump or if it's a patch version bump, then I take it and I run the test suite and that's about it. If test suite passes, it's fine. But so I'm trusting that I'm trusting that signal, right? Okay. And then if it is a minor version bump, I'm probably going to do the same, although I may stop to see like what are the new features available to me or like is, is there something here that's that's new to me. And if I if it's a major version bump, which I would jet which you know, depending on how people restrict their libraries, these latter two, you might have to run like bundle outdated to be alerted to the fact that these are out there, um, which is another reason why I don't restrict things in the gem file. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think bundle outdated actually got changed so that if you restrict in the gem file, I don't think outdated will show you that there's a new version of the gem. I've never even used bundle outdated, so I have no idea. Okay. Well, anyway, I think it, at one point it showed you regardless of your restriction, and now I think it honors your restriction. So if you say like Rails 5.1 and Rails 6 comes out, it won't tell you that Rails is outdated. See, or, I would want to show you like both, especially if you're in a situation where there is a new version out that does match your, your version constraint, but then also a version that is newer than that one that doesn't. I, like, I, I, right. I would love it to say like, this new version is out. Also, this version, which you can't d get to because of your version constraints. Yeah, and that's what Hex does in a nice little pretty color formatted table. It shows you like, here's the version you currently have. Here's the maximum version allowable under your current configuration. And here's the highest version available, period. 
which is a fun uh, dance to have to try and figure yeah. out. Um, but it's cool. Anyway, so I basically fall back on change logs and I build up a like, I can trust this. Li like, I know that I can trust, for the most part, I can trust Rails 5.1.3 going to 5.1.4. But I know I probably can't trust 5.1 to 5.2, right? But no, I know Rails doesn't follow Ember. <laughs> if it did, sure. you could probably trust that. Maybe. But whereas most libraries, most of the dependencies that I have, I can probably go from, you know, 1.2 to 1.3 without an issue. But I do like to look at those change logs. And it makes me wish that when I do that, I wish there was a, a programmatic way to like have a change log link in your gem spec or something and have it say mm -hmm. like, oh, I updated these. If you would like to see the if you would like to see the changes, here's where you go. Because ultimately what I end up doing is like, okay, where's the homepage? Where's the GitHub repo for this? Is there right. a change log or a news file? Is there if there's not, is there anything in releases? And you just kind of have to hunt it down. It'd be great if Rustock included your change log file. It does include your source code, so it, it, there is at least like it's three clicks away, I think, probably. Anyway, it'd be cool if, uh, if like in the top level links, I'm pretty sure there's a link that gives you for your readme, and it'd be cool if there was a link for the change log in there as well. I just wonder in like all this reinvention of, you know, package managers that we do with every new programming language, I haven't seen one yet that does like some sort of programmatic, like you were coming from version 1.2, you landed on version 1.4. Here, I've parsed the change log from 1.2 to 1.4 for you. These are the changes, right? Or something like that. Instead, you know, I bundle update some things and I'm told that I have to HTTP party hard or whatever, right? Like that, <laughs> that's, the, that's the messaging I get from Bundler and from RubyGems uh, rather than anything that could potentially be interesting at all. Yeah, I mean, ideally, ideally, change logs are well structured and easy for you to find the relevant things. Like, I think the Rails change log, if nothing else, is more thorough than a commit log, which is nice, but could very much do with structuring into at least groups. Yeah, that's what. So there's the keep a change log website, right? Yes, which is the format that Diesel follows. Everybody should follow keep keep a change logs change log format. Right, our our buddy Olivier. So that's his idea, his site, I guess. I follow that mm, for the most part. I think my date format is a little different, but the idea of like, you know, here's heading number two, here's like the version, uh, here are the things I added, here are the things I changed, here's some like basically major headers that you might want to know about, like here are bugs fixed, that kind of thing. And I try and include a link to the actual, like here's a link to all of the commits in this release, like if you care, because the change log to me or the news file, as we call it, as we dogmatically call it at ThoughtBot, is just you know, like that change log boiled down into what, actually matters to users you should call it change log not news yeah we should probably just do that but like it's funny you mentioned i don't follow the date format and i use a different file name and there are sec there are sections on this website explaining exactly why you should use the date that specific date format and why calling it change log just because it's convention right like i think i've read through this yeah ju just because it's convention and news is a gnu thing and change log is just much 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 more common right that makes it harder for there to be, you know, for there to be tooling built around it or just for people to find it. I'm trying to think of what I use for. Oh, I just use like November 2nd, 2017, January 16th, 2017. So you can't really parse that as easily as you could parse like year, 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 month, 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 day, day or month, month, day, day. It's also just a very specifically American format. Yes. Yeah. But that would be an easy change for me to make programmatically to this file for sure. Yeah. I already went through all of the all of the old news files and like updated everything. <laughs> I remember doing that one Friday. It was like going to this format from releases that happened back in 2009 all the way through whenever I was doing that. So uh, that was fun. Maybe somebody could take a shot at that. It would require a whole community buying into like, oh, 
when I release a package, I have to release this machine readable changelog, right? And hopefully it could double as a human readable changelog and it could right. play both of those roles. But I think that that would be cool instead of just continually reinventing the same things that exist in other languages. To be honest, though, I think if everybody did keep a changelog and followed that format specifically, there would also be so much less of a need for that just because it would be so much easier to find that information in the first place. Yeah, sure. Because I'm just trying to think of like, does Ruby Gems have a, a repository? Like, what's in the gem spec for Ruby Gems? I know there's like a web page or website or something like that. You mean like Ruby Gems itself or RubyGems.org? The gem spec. Like, what do I have in my gem? Because current there's no like changelog field of a gem spec, right? Oh, I gotcha. I have no idea if that's even a field that's available. Right. So if there was a if there's a repository, then you could just say like, oh, by convention. You should have your changelog at whatever your repository URL is slash changelog or something like that or changelog.md or whatever it's going to be. For the record, RubyGems does not appear to keep a changelog. <laughs> um, I've been going back and forth on this one, though, actually. I'd, I'd be interested to hear your opinion because deprecated is a um, I guess it's for diesel specifically, which is going to be pretty strict about Semver. But uh, like for non Semver major bumps. Deprecated is redundant with changed and removed. Mm. And so I've been going back and forth on Whoa, do I list... Hold on. Deprecated is redundant with changed and removed? As a section of your changelog for anything that's not Semver Major. Why is it... Actually, even for Semver Major, it's presumably redundant. In which way is it redundant? Because anything that was changed or removed by definition was deprecated, not actually changed or removed. I guess. I mean, it's deprecated... It's not Semver Major... Well, but deprecated means, sure, but deprecated means like you're going to get a warning now and you sure. didn't used to get a warning. So that's different Which than is, changed, right? Changed is like, or removed. Removed is like, you cannot call this thing anymore. Exactly. But so that means then, but, but, but what sucks about that, and so this is why I've been going back and forth on, because yes, you are correct and I agree with you. But what sucks there is uh, now those both, which are useful to uh, things to have as separate things, like this is the change you make versus you need to find something else to use. Mm -hmm. uh, those are no longer separate because now they're both just lumped in together under deprecated and they're never going to end up being separate because then they're just going to end up in, you know, 2.0 removed first item. All deprecated code has been removed. Probably only item. <laughs> right. Unless there was a change that I wanted to make that I couldn't do a deprecation cycle on. Uh, that would have been a breaking change. You know, because the deprecates, actually, if you look at Diesel's change log, it'll say like, X has been deprecated, it was moved to Y, or X has been deprecated, use Z instead, or yep. X has been deprecated, you know, renamed to whatever, or X has been deprecated, it will be removed in 2.0. But, like, it sucks to have to just repeat what would have already been said in the header, but then also if I don't put it under the deprecated header, it's not necessarily clear, mm -hmm. then I either just have to restate that it's deprecated in every item, or it's just not clear that... This was changed or removed, but in a way that is backwards compatible because we deprecate things. Right. And also, like, this, that reminds me of, like, the roll-up problem. I don't know if that's the right terminology for it, but basically, like, it hits me almost every time, like, there's a tweet or somebody's like, hey, we released, um, I think the last time this came up for me was, like, there's a release candidate or a beta of Elixir 1.6 or something mm -hmm. like that. And it was like, click here for the changelog. And I'm like, cool. I click for the changelog, and it's the changelog from the previous beta or, like... <laughs> And yeah. it's like, well, that, that doesn't, I guess. Okay, so I go through the next beta. And then, like, so let's say I'm just a user of this and version 1.0 comes out, right? And it's just like, here's the changes from the release candidate. It's like, well, I guess. I mean, you're, you're making me do a lot of work to go through 
figuring out what the actual changes from the last version that anybody reasonably was using, right? Well, I discuss, so I discussed this with Olivier. <clears throat> okay. Um, actually, and we, we came to a consensus on what the thing to do there is. Now, one thing is I think it is important that if you follow this, that your release candidate is an actual release candidate. So if you need to make any changes between the release candidate and the final release, you release another release candidate first. Okay. But basically, you keep those change logs separate during the beta slash release candidate cycle, and then when you release the final release, you squash them all into one thing. So if you look at Diesel's change log right now, the change log shows a diff between 0.99.1 and 1.0.0. Mm -hmm. But if you looked at it, if you look at it on any of the beta or RCs, the beta and the RC do not exist in the change log anymore. It's like they never. No, happened. they don't. But they but they existed when I released the beta, right. and then when I released the release candidate, so that people could know for people who were using the beta, here's what's changed between those versions. But then. Because presumably anybody who's using the latest beta was pro is is much more likely to have been using the previous beta, and the people who didn't use the previous beta were, are more likely to be waiting for the final release. I guess, but let's say like you end up taking on a dependency that is a beta because it fixes a bug that you have, right? So you're like, ah, oh, fix this issue. I'll just take it. I'll come back. I'll check when it when it gets released. I'll check later, right? So you're on, you know, Sean's library version one dot dot two dot beta one right hyphen one, beta one. one dot one hyphen beta one or something like that right and then you come back a few months later and you see that sean is on version 1.2 now or something but you don't know like you may have already accounted for some amount of the change that happened between you know the previous version and the beta you took but you no longer know that diff between the beta you took and whatever became the next version Right. Sure. I mean, I, I guess at that point, yeah, you do have to just go look at the change log on the tag for the last release candidate before the final release to get the to get the change log of the beta cycle. Right. But it is, you know, because Git always preserved in some fo in in that form for the people who 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 have that problem. Yeah, that's true. That's also why I think it's important that you have a release candidate if you're doing that. So that way there is at least one step where from, you know, the versions that are going to disappear from your change log to the version that is there, nothing changed. Right. Other than your change log. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And if your project is large enough to do a release candidate, that seems like a reasonable thing, right? Like if your idea is like there will be a candidate for a release and then there will be a candidate. I mean, if it's worth doing a beta, it's I mean, worth doing a release candidate. Uh, probably. Sure. I mean, unless you follow, unless you're following the train model, but then if you're following the train model, things don't change between betas you, other than what do you mean train model? Like the way that Rust, Ember, and all of the web browsers work. Every six weeks, master okay. becomes beta, and whatever is beta becomes uh, stable. Okay, right. And like beta doesn't really change in those six weeks, other than bugs, and specifically bugs that are new within you know in that beta. So like uh, a regression from stable to beta. Those are the only things that ever change between betas. So if you are going from stable to stable, like nothing that changed from when the beta was released to when the beta became stable is relevant to you because it was always something that was added in the beta in the first place, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense to me. But yeah, but anyway, if it's worth doing a beta, it's worth doing release candidate. Yeah, I've never actually had anything that I felt was large enough and would get enough uptick to warrant doing a beta. I think we did like release candidates for clearance 1.0, which was probably pretty silly in hindsight. But <laughs> I think we ended up with like RC9 or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's scary to call things something 1.0 as we've discussed because you're like, oh, yes. now I'm going to commit to this. And then I think I took over as maintainer shortly thereafter and was like, oh, we shouldn't... <laughs> 
shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that. But these are all breaking changes. But, you know, frankly, those were going to be breaking changes to people on zero point whatever as well. And in the Ruby community, it's not uncommon to take a zero point whatever dependency and not think anything about it. Yep. Actually, just I just saw just the other day, there's PG 1.0. It is the, yeah. P, the PG gem. Yeah, after many many years of development, is there is now a 1.0. If you're using a Postgres on Rails <laughs> or with Ruby, and you're using that gem, you can now rest assured that it has reached the maturity of 1.0. Yeah, I mean, I think unless you actually intend to meaningfully use the marketing of 1.0, just ship 1.0. I mean, at least, well, assuming you have some intention of making a minimal effort to keep thing, things stable. If you have no intention of, key, of of even putting any effort towards stability, sure, never release 1.0, stay 0.x forever. That I mean, that's kind of what that communicates. But like, at the end of the day, for most projects, the difference between releasing a 1.0 and not releasing a 1.0 is now you communicate to your users when there is a breaking change. Yep. I would say the, the caveat to that, <laughs> just in my experiences, are higher level dependencies, where it's just like, you just have to be more sure. Like it's it's a bigger deal to make a breaking change to higher level dependencies. It should be just as big a deal if it's 0.0 though. Because presumably you're saying it's a bigger deal there because it causes more breakage, but it causes the same amount of breakage if it's 0.x. Yes, that's true. That's fair. The big difference being that tooling makes it harder for people to upgrade when there isn't a breaking change because, you know, everything will just assume if the major version is zero, like pessimistic version is this exact version because Semver does not apply. That might be true in Rust, but like the pessimistic version can. It's actually not true in Rust. I think it should okay. be. It's not true in Ruby. Like zero is not like as much as the Semver documentation says zero is special. The actual pessimistic version constraint does not treat it specially at all. It's just math. Uh, well, I guess actually <laughs> I, I shouldn't say pessimistic version constraint because they are different. The pessimistic version constraint is different than the Semver compatible version constraint, which okay. I don't think Bundler or Ruby gems have an explicit. But those are separate operators in Rust. But the Semver compatible operator in Rust should always treat, if the major version is zero, it should always treat that as equals this exact version. Do you think that's even true for going from like 0 0.1.0 to 0 0.1.1? Yeah, because according to Semver, literally anything goes. Yeah, Wild West. All right. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just think like, yeah, there are some, so, so even just today. So I'm rewriting insert statement again. Third time? <laughs> Uh, like eighth time. Okay. <laughs> I just think it's funny because I'm, I'm, I I got one release where I didn't rewrite it. I guess technically two, although 1.0 really wasn't a release from a code point of view. So 1.1, I did not rewrite insert statement. And that's the first release in a very long time because <laughs> I rewrote it for 0 0.99. I rewrote it for 0 0.16. I rewrote it in, I think, 0 0.15 or 14. Anyway, I'm rewriting it again. Uh, and I found a comment in a thing because I was basically I'm rewriting it again because I want to support insert from select, which that is not the syntax for it. But, you know, mm -hmm. insert into table name, select from whatever. Yep. And I've been bike shutting on the API, but I eventually realized, oh, OK, well, regardless of what API we go with, I actually know exactly what structure I want this to have. So I don't have to re-implement all of upsert for this special case, which then gave me more ideas for APIs that I have to bike shut on. <laughs> And that required, okay, well, I should refactor a lot of this because right now the way insert statement is structured assumes basically the big thing that that changed in my thinking was originally I was thinking there was going to be a completely separate version of insert statement that was specifically like I'm inserting from a select statement. And now I'm thinking actually I want to reuse our existing insert statement structure and where the values go right now, just stick the select statement in there. But right now insert statement assumes that values is a keyword that will appear in the query. And so I need to do a lot of restructuring to make it not assume that. And so 
you know, it's this rabbit hole of, okay, well, to do that, I need to introduce this struct. I know where I need that to go. But then for that to kind of work properly, I need to restructure this other thing. And basically what it came down to was uh, where this rabbit hole really started to get interesting was uh, the way we handled parentheses was really, really funky and hacky. And it was a workaround for nesting tuples that was a thing that I wanted to support. Not so much of nesting tuples, but like where the end result is that you're nesting tuples. It was like, if you're inserting a new post, I want your struct that you call your insertable struct, I want that to be the same data structure that you use to represent your user input. So like, it should be one-to-one with your web form. Okay. Problem is, user ID doesn't come from the web form. Right. And so you can't, like, you have to do extra steps unless I make it so that you can just pass this entire struct and then also the, assign the user ID separately. So when I added the support for tuple inserts, which actually was, you know, new in 0.16, and I also wanted it to be like, it could be a tuple of a field and then another insertable structure, which then, you know, theoretically means it could be a tuple. And the problem there was that previously tuples were the things adding the parentheses. So I ended up doing this like hacky workaround. And the reason I had to do the hacky workaround was if I didn't do it in this weird way, parentheses went in the wrong place for upsert. Anyway, so I, so I realized, okay, I need to just come, I need to fix this. And I found a comment that was like, remove this function when issue number is fixed. And so I'm like, oh, what's that issue number? And so I opened the issue number, and the issue number is fix our upsert API to be less hacky. <laughs> and I did that in, in, in 0.99, which was great, but then I forgot to fix this. And the comment's like, and fix this by when something calls values, wrapping that in a group, which is our AST node that just adds parentheses at that point. Mm-hmm. The problem is I can't do that anymore because the values <laughs> method is public API and therefore the return type of it is public API. Yep. And so changing one of the type parameters to grouped is technically a breaking change. Sounds like you're well on your way to 6.0. <laughs> no, I mean, I, it's just I, I have to do a slightly different structure, which I think might actually be better than what I was thinking. I'm not because I'm, it might let me remove another thing that I don't want to have in the code base. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure yet, but. It is funny because uh, the only reason the, the way I'm going about doing it is, is like I'm just dancing around like, yeah, this thing's private API and this thing's private API and this thing's private API. And even though all of the types that come out of this are technically visible, none of it, you can't get to any of it through public API. So, okay. but luckily I had the foresight to a bunch of, a bunch of these things I'm changing right now were public API in 0.16. So luckily I had the foresight to say there's no reason anybody should need to care about these in 0.99. Cool. But that, so that's that's one thing I wanted to mention earlier when we were discussing breaking changes to begin with. One of the other things that makes Semver hard is people have different definitions of what makes something public API. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Like even in Rubyland, the idea of like if it's public, then it's public API versus if it's documented, then it's public API. Right. Versus but there are plenty of like, private methods that are public API. In, in, in both Ruby and Rails. I have written gems on top of things that I know to be private methods that... <laughs> but that are, pub, that are documented public API and I you're guess, allowed to rely on. I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's really no there's no rules. <laughs> so that's, that's the definition I use. Rails uses the same one. I think it's a very good definition. Of Docu- what? Publicly uh, accessible public documentation? API. Yeah. Uh, yeah, if it's rendered in our publicly accessible documentation. Right, and that's kind of the same thing I did for Scenic where I was being a little more... Um, paranoid about this about what was getting declared as public was like i still provide really good yard documentation yarn yard 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 okay one of those ya words yet another something uh (laughs) ruby documentation tool what's the what's the rn and yarn is it just yarn (laughs) yeah uh oh i never thought about yeah yarn probably is yet another something isn't it yet another something node anyway 
yeah, so I like still added the documentation. I just tagged it with like something with like a thing that gets ex with a tag that gets excluded from what gets generated by by yarn by default. Yeah. Um, so it's still there. And I call it extension, which is like if you basically the idea being I only wrote an adapter for Postgres. I have no intention of supporting any other adapter because I don't use it. But I wanted people to be able to write other adapters. So I documented the way to do that and then just said, like, you can read the extension docs. I'm going to try not to break these, <laughs> like, mm. <laughs> but they may not necessarily follow Semver. And I, the likelihood that they will follow Semver is now increased because people have actually written adapters. Right. Um, and I haven't really found a need to ever change one of those yet. So, yeah. So the way I went about it in Diesel, that, that's actually a decent idea to have everything hidden by default. The, the thing that I did for Diesel basically only worked because I was bad at writing documentation at first. <laughs> it's not even that it was bad. I didn't even know that. I didn't know if this was going to be a project that I would maintain at first. But um, uh, basically, I just I added a lint to the framework that's like no publicly accessible item can have missing documentation. I went through module by module. And actually, for every module, the first thing I did was I, I would open I would, I would do this in the web browser, actually. Just go to the documentation for that module, click every single link in there and read every single piece of existing documentation. Uh, so number one, anything that is currently documented that I don't want to be, I notice it there. Anything that, specifically things that wouldn't get caught by, like I added this lint. Because uh, when I add the lint, it's like every item that isn't currently documented, I either have to decide, you know, I either have to write docs for it or decide, actually, I don't want this in our public API. Mm -hmm. But th that wouldn't catch things that have, you know, existing doc comments. But the main reason I did that was to catch places that documentation was wrong or out of date. But every module I'd go through, read every existing documentation comment that was there, make update if it needed to be, open a pull request for that, and then add deny missing docs to that module, and then fix all of the errors by either doc hidden or uh, documenting it. And we have, like, Diesel has legitimate reasons to need something to be publicly accessible but, but private API. Most of the time that things are doc hidden is just because I wrote it before publicly accessible to the crate was a thing that you could do in Rust. Mm -hmm. But even with that tool, a lot we have a lot of things that are internal API, but we need to access them from code that we generate for you. Right. And like the specific code that we generate in our in our generated code, that is not part of the public API. Of course, the externally visible behavior of that code is very much public API. But uh, and anyway, but that that code needs to reference things that you're not allowed to, but like are our own internal API. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, it needs to it needs to be accessible outside of Diesel. All right, but some people don't like that. That's my definition of public API. I think everybody's gonna have something different. Like I was just, sure. I was just perusing through scenic documentation, and I was laughing because uh, the like a lot of places for methods, I document the return type as void, which doesn't exist in Ruby, which right. means like technically I'm like I'm trying to signal like I didn't think about what this returns, so don't count on it. But like that's not a reasonable thing for me to say if somebody were to re were to start depending on it. it wasn't like, well, did you read the documentation? It's like, well, no, I I didn't. But it was returning this, so I kind of depended on it. And like looking through the list of things, it's like migration statements and stuff that you would likely never depend on the return type for. But sure. uh, you know, with no obvious way to say anything other than like, I guess you would be left to like either invent your own void type to return or just return well, or, just or return, return nil. nil, right? And I mean, I think it's completely reasonable to say like, no, you actually should uh, look at the docs to see what this returns because you might be returning different types conditionally. That's true. Yep, and presumably there's some interface shared between them. That's the subset of what you should be relying. Although on. Although that is another one of my pet peeves. 
especially in even in application code, which I see I see it often. It's like, oh, this thing returns nil or this other thing, or it returns an array of something or just one item of the thing. And it's like, can can we yes, make it okay, can we make it return cases. one type, please? <laughs> but I more mean where you return like an array or a hash. Right, but I would still prefer that it return that we just decide what it returns. And that... but, but what I mean is that there is a reasonably large subset of those two types that is the shared interface, and that's what you rely on. Oh, like right. So numerable. the right. So you have a numerable or we return. Yeah, you have some sort of duct type that maybe. Yeah, you know, maybe let's go array. Sometimes it returns an array, and sometimes it returns a set. Sure. True. Random aside question for you before we wrap up. Yep. Because this statement turned out to be much more controversial than I expected. Okay. Do you think Ecto is an ORM? I mean, sure. I don't know. It maps things in a database to things in my application, but it doesn't have objects. Well, it depends on your definition of object. I guess. It has structs. It maps things to structs. Which C calls objects. Yeah, I think it's fine. I'd call it an ORM. Like, if you want to okay. get, if you want to split hairs about it, then I guess I would allow you to say it's not, but I don't... The semantics of that argument aren't particularly interesting to me. Why? What Did you say it was an ORM and somebody said it's not? <laughs> uh, somebody said in an article, it's not an ORM, and I just commented. I, I commented like with a quote to that and then a quote from the Elixir docs that says it maps data from, from your database to Elixir structs. I'm like, that's, kind, that's, that's the definition of an ORM. It's an SRM, <laughs> struct relational mapping. <laughs> It's just like any time anybody says this isn't an ORM, it's because they have like this specific narrow negative definition of ORM. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another way to look at it is, no, this is an ORM. This is, you know, this is a thing that will make you think differently about what an ORM can be. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's a, it's a thing I used. It, it fills that same role that I would use active record for. So sure. Right. So like, I don't, that's, that's from a user perspective. I don't see a meaningful difference. There's major differences in like how you use those things. And they're really sure. interesting differences. And if like, if you've only ever used active record, then you should go check out some of these other ORMs slash database mapping tools, slash whatever you want to call them. I don't know what it would call itself if it's not an ORM, but go database driver, database driver. Sure. Go check out that. And like, particularly Ecto has like this very foreign if you're coming from active record kind of approach to uses the repository patterns particularly interesting i think to look at but i mean i think for me the difference between like a database driver versus an orm is just does it do anything intelligent based off of the structure that you want back or based on the schema you're getting it from like for me an orm is a thing that operates on the row level whereas a database driver is a thing that operates on the column level okay sure that makes sense but yeah anyway Okay, we should wrap up. We're breaking our uh, one car ride rule for... <laughs> Depends on how long the car ride is, I guess. Uh, okay, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 140. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about any of our episodes, you can tweet us at underscorebikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.